I invite you to accompany me in your Bible to Mark chapter 1. We are in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, and verses 9 to 11. Thus says the Word of God, It came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting, and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove, that a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Well, the Gospel according to Mark presents us with the good news of Jesus Christ, explaining what God has done in the person and through the work of his Son, to save sinners for the praise of his glorious grace. It teaches us that the gospel is not something that we do, but rather something that God has done. Mark's gospel account is the shortest of the gospels, but its conciseness contributes all the more to the density with which it testifies to the truth about Jesus Christ. Mark's gospel introduces us to Jesus' titles and his teachings and his deeds. It presents Jesus as the Lord, the Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man, and the servant of Yahweh spoken of by Isaiah the prophet. Here we see a specimen of flawless humanity fleshed out in our fallen world, buffeted with temptation, yet never tainted. And here we see perfect deity cloaked in a veil of flesh with a peculiar glory that shines through the humanity, discernible to the eye of faith, yet invisible to the eye of the flesh. Here we see perfect deity unified with perfect humanity, two distinct natures conjoined inseparably yet without mixture, constituting the matchless person who is the one and only mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And so Mark is saying to us, brothers and sisters and friends, come and see Jesus Christ. Come and discern who he truly is and confess with me that he is the Son of God to the salvation of your soul and the satisfaction of your heart. Last week we met John the Baptist and we considered his prophetic background and his peculiar baptism and his preparatory message. John was, as Jesus put it in John 5.35, a burning and shining light. But John's light was like the light of the moon compared to that of the sun. John's was a reflective light, not the source of light. As the Gospel of John chapter 1 and verses 6 to 9 says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of that light, that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. Well, John's testimony was meant to reflect the Son's glory, to point everyone beyond the forerunner to the King who would come after him. And so as Jesus begins his ministry, John the Baptist quickly, willingly steps into the background and he concedes the center stage to Jesus Christ. 
God is putting his grand works of redemption on display before the theater of humanity here. And John's act was over, and now it's time for the Son of God to burst upon the scene and to perform wonders and, do, and, and teach things as no man has ever taught, as no man has ever done. And so John's ministry lasted only about six months. Talk about going up in a blaze of glory and then fading out. Only about six months, and then he was imprisoned, beheaded, and he graduated to glory. And the transitionary movement in God's redemptive historical dealings with his people and with the earth, that transitional movement from John's role on the center stage of salvation history to Jesus' central role on that stage formally took place at the baptism of Jesus. And so as Mark introduces us to Jesus, starting in verse 9, he makes no editorial comment about who Jesus is beyond that made in verse 1 where he called him the Christ and the Son of God. We would almost expect him to expound on that phrase, Son of God, much like the Apostle John does in his own gospel account. But Mark is not big on theological commentary. Instead, He's interested mainly in the history. He relays the historical deeds of Jesus and intends for the history to speak for itself. This is basically Peter's eyewitness account to the life and teachings and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ as transcribed through the pen of John Mark, the son in the faith of Peter. And so as he relays the eyewitness account of the historical deeds and teachings of Jesus, the reader must make the theological connections. And these connections must be made by comparing Old Testament messianic expectation with the facts about the historical life of Christ. And the text that we have before us is masterful in its manner of jam-packing Christological truth within the matrix of succinct, concise, historical narrative. As Jesus abruptly shows up on the scene in these verses, he's baptized. And so the text provides us with a flood of revelation concerning who Jesus really is. And the purpose of this text is to disclose to us, the readers, who have eyes to see the true identity of Jesus of Nazareth. That's what the baptism account is about. And so our outline will follow Mark's intended purpose. I have three points, each of which coincides with each of the three verses in our text. Speaking of Jesus, let's consider, first of all, his vicarious identification, verse 9. Second, his messianic identification, verse 10. And third, his divine identification, verse 11. Well, in verse 9 we read, It came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Jesus' baptism was the initiation rite marking the formal commencement of his public ministry. And right at the outset, our Lord begins his ministry by formally identifying with the sinners that he came to redeem. Hence, the significance of Jesus' baptism can be summarized in this. His vicarious identification with sinners as the sin bearer. Now that word vicarious means performed, exercised, received, or suffered in the place of another. Or another definition, taking the place of another person, acting or serving as a substitute. A vicar is one who performs something on behalf 
of another. And so Jesus here is vicariously identifying with sinners. His baptism was his voluntary, formal, public assumption of the penalty of sin and death upon himself in the place instead of sinners in anticipation of his death and resurrection on their behalf. The text of Mark's gospel indicates that there is vicarious identification taking place in at least three ways. We'll recall that John's baptism, according to verse 4, Mark chapter 1, verse 4, was a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And yet Jesus comes out to be baptized, and he has no sins to repent from. 1 Peter 1.22, he committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Hebrews 7.26, for such a high priest was fitting for us who is holy, blameless, undefiled, separate from sinners. We are conceived and born in sin, but Jesus was born of the Holy Spirit. And so in Luke 135, when the angel appeared to Mary, he said to her, the Holy One, that Holy One, which is a divine title for God in the book of Isaiah, that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. So he was born holy, impeccable in his divine nature. And so why was he baptized? Why did he come out and identify with the sinner's baptism? Mark wants us to put the pieces together to make the appropriate theological connections because they point to Jesus' identity and the mission that he came to accomplish. Mark is relating the history It's up to us to discern the significance. And the fact is that Jesus Christ is God's vicar before men. And he is also the sinner's vicar before God. As the God-man, he represents God to men, and he represents men before God. And as I mentioned, there are three clear indications in the text that Jesus assumes the place of sinners as their substitute and vicariously identifies with them by undergoing baptism. Each one is a contrastive parallel. That is, there's a parallel yet a contrast at the same time. Or to put it in more formal terminology, each one is an antithetical juxtaposition. First, There is a parallel yet a contrast between the multitudes confessing their sins and the Father's affirmation that implies that Jesus is without sin. Mark 1.5 says that all those went out to the Jordan and they were baptized confessing their sins. Confessing their sins. And here Jesus goes out and is baptized in verse 9, and there's absolutely no record of any sin confessed. To the contrary, in verse 11, the voice of the Father confirms that Jesus is well-pleasing to him as the perfectly obedient Son. And so by being baptized, Jesus is the sinless one who assumes the place of the many sinners. The one assumes the place of the many. The head of the church assumes the substitutionary place of his corporate elect body. Second, there is a contrastive parallel between the places of origin of those who come out to be baptized, between the places of origin, where they come from. The sinful multitudes come out from Judea and Jerusalem, verse 5. Jerusalem was the place of God's favor. 
Psalm 135.21 says, Blessed be the Lord out of Zion who dwells in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the place of God's special manifest presence. That's where his house was. That's where the temple was, signifying access to the presence of God, his favorable presence. But Nazareth, on the other hand, was a despised city in that time. Nazareth was associated with sinners and rebels and political dissidents and outcasts. There had been uprisings against Rome from Nazareth. There had been false messiahs, self-proclaimed messiahs from Nazareth. This is reflected in Nathanael's attitude initially when he heard of Jesus in John chapter 1, and he heard that he was from Nazareth. And you remember what he said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Galilee, where Nazareth was located, was not Judea. Jerusalem was in Judea. Nazareth was in Galilee, and Galilee was known to the Jews as Galilee of the Gentiles because it was on the outskirts, toward the outskirts, of the promised land. Later when the Jews say of Jesus, is this not the Galilean? And later in the book of the Acts, when they associate the Christian movement with the Galilean movement, that was intended as an insult. And so in Mark chapter 1, we see sinners dwelling in Jerusalem where they didn't deserve to dwell. And Jesus coming from Nazareth, who had his rightful throne in Jerusalem, yet dwelled in the city of sinners. The sinless one is portrayed as the outcast, while sinners are permitted to dwell in the place of God's house. Vicarious identification. And third... There's another contrastive parallel. The grammatical construction of the Greek places the two in parallel by using a similar construction. And note this. I'm going to get into some more technical syntactical arguments here from the Greek, but just pay attention and follow along, and it's not difficult to grasp. First of all, we have the subject undergoing baptism. The multitude's and Jesus. Then there is a verb of motion. The multitudes went out, and Jesus came. Then there is a passive verb. They were baptized, and he was baptized. Then there is the agent specified who performs the baptism by John, followed by the object into which they were baptized, in or into the Jordan. And so the same parallel construction between verses 5 and 9 can be observed. And Mark employs this parallel syntactical construction in order to draw our attention to the theological parallel going on here. This was common in uh, the, the manner in which the Hebrews express themselves. We see it all over the Old Testament. And John Mark is actually speaking here in Hebraisms. And so we see, first of all, the subjects of baptism, followed by verbs of motion, followed by the verbal action, followed by the administrator of baptism, followed by the object of baptism. In both verses, the parallels far too neat to pass over. And so Mark is teaching by a syntax that Jesus repeats and recapitulates, as it were, the same precise pattern of the multitudes because he comes to assume their place vicariously. The Gospel of Matthew adds weight to these observations because there we read in chapter 3, verses 13 to 15, that Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan. And there, by the way, he doesn't follow the same grammatical construction as Mark. The order's different. There's no parallel precisely. But he says Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him, and John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you're coming to me? 
Remember, John said, he's the one that will baptize in the Holy Spirit and fire. He has a baptism to baptize you with that I am absolutely powerless to perform. And so he seeks to prevent Jesus from being baptized. Why? Because John's baptism was a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And this one was the sinless one. But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now. For thus, and here's the key phrase, thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. To fulfill all righteousness. Then John allowed him. And so Jesus' baptism, his submission to John's baptism, was his seal of approval on John's message which means that Jesus was accepting what John declared about the identity of Jesus, that the one who had come after him was the Son of God and the true Messiah. But even more than that, it was Jesus' obedience to the commandment of God that Israel should be baptized by the prophet John. And so Jesus fulfilled the law in order to establish righteousness on behalf of those he came to save, to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, to fill up the full measure of the righteousness that the law of God, according to the covenant of works, required of a mature covenantal head of the last Adam, Jesus Christ. Now, every believer knows that Jesus had to die on the cross to make atonement for our sins. But what we often fail to realize is that he had to keep the whole law on our behalf by living a full, righteous life. And that's why he was born under the law. That's the phrase the Apostle Paul uses, under the law, which means under the righteous requirement of the law is a covenant of works bound by the necessity of rendering full, perfect, and perpetual obedience to the law of God in order to fulfill the terms of the covenant of works and to establish righteousness on behalf of his people. Under the law. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 to 5 says, But when the fullness of time had come, and that's what we're reading about in the Gospel of Mark. The fullness of time, the very center and apex of God's redemptive dealings with the earth. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Now we know that we're justified by grace alone through faith alone, in Christ alone, but we're also actually justified by works, by the works of Christ, because in order to establish the righteousness with which we are imputed, which we are given as a free gift of salvation, Christ had to obey the law. His works had to be perfect. Romans 5, 18 and 19 describes Christ's act of obedience in establishing the sinner's justification before God. It says, therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. That's Adam who broke the covenant of works. Even so, through one man's righteous act, that's Jesus, the free gift came to all men, that is, all the elect represented by him covenantally who embrace him by faith, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's obedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Not just his death, but his obedience. The totality and fullness of his obedience from the moment he was conceived in the womb of the virgin all the way to the moment he breathed out his last and expired. He fulfilled the law of God. And so now, in the grace of justification, God doesn't only forgive our sins, leaving us in a state of neutrality before him. 
He imputes to us the perfect, flawless righteousness that Jesus Christ established through his own obedience. To use the language of Zechariah, the prophet Zechariah, chapter 3, he removes our filthy garments, but he doesn't leave us naked like Adam before the fall. But he clothes us, it says in Zechariah 3, 4, with rich robes. Remember that story. Zechariah has a vision of Joshua, the high priest, standing before the tribunal of God's judgment. And the angel of the Lord is there, the messenger of the covenant, the pre-incarnate Christ. And Satan is there, standing to accuse him and condemn him. And Joshua is clothed in filthy garments, and he stands rightfully condemned before the holy throne of God. And yet the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ, stands up and says, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? And then he says, Take away the filthy garments from him. But he didn't stop there. He didn't leave him naked. He said, clothe him in rich robes, put a turban on his head, put the royal priestly attire on him, beautify him in the presence of God, let him shine with the splendor of the righteousness and holiness and glory of God. And so we see that fulfilled in Christ. Christ does that for us. In Christ is fulfilled what Isaiah 61 says. He was sent to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them the garment of praise in the place of the spirit of heaviness. So that we can say, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. The perfect, flawless righteousness of Jesus Christ, clothing sinners. All that's possible because of his vicarious identification with us. Because of this exchange, he took our place so that we can take his place before God. Now we may assume the place of his favor and we may glory and boast before the throne of God. Not in our own righteousness, but in the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ, our only boast. 2 Corinthians 5.21 for God made him to be for God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him this is the glory of justification it's done by a twofold imputation our sin to Christ his righteousness to us all that's possible because of his vicarious identification with us, because he went into this water and he said, I will take their sins upon myself. I will identify with the sinners that need repentance. I will assume on myself the death penalty for sin. At the second place, consider his messianic identification. Mark 1.10 says that when Jesus was baptized... Immediately, coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. Immediately. Not a long time later, but immediately. That's one of Mark's favorite words in this gospel. Something like over half of the occurrences of this word immediately in the Greek New Testament are found in the gospel of Mark. It occurs 11 times in chapter 1 and 37 times in the gospel as a whole. Immediately this, immediately that. Immediately calls attention to the action-packed, dramatic development of the gospel. And it conveys the events with more graphic vividness. It's as if Mark is taking the reader there to observe these events as they're unfolding. Never in the history of the world has so much meaningful action occurred in such a short time. 
The coming of Jesus marks the era and epoch of the rapid fulfillment of prophetic expectation. One thing happens right after another in rapid succession as everything the prophets wrote begins to be fulfilled. Before Peter and the apostles even had time to process the meaning of the events that would unfold, another major event would occur immediately. Verse 10 gives us the next major event of our text. And before we can process the fullness of what happened in verse 9 in Jesus' baptism, now immediately the heavens are splitting open. Mark uses the imperfect tense in the Greek. Not just that the heavens split open, but immediately the heavens were splitting open and the Spirit of God was descending like a dove. He switches to the imperfect tense in order to convey the events with a graphic eyewitness, personal nature. And so here we have the heavenly attestation of Jesus's messianic identity. The heavens split open. The Messiah, our Savior, was promised ever since man's fall into sin. The first promise of his coming was Genesis 3.15. He was anticipated by Adam and Eve and Seth and Noah and Abraham and David. And like David, Messiah would be God's anointed one. That's what Messiah means in the Hebrew. Meshiach in the Hebrew means the anointed one. In Greek, it's Christos, cognate to the verb krio, which means to smear with oil or to anoint. The name derives from the symbolism of that ancient practice of the Hebrew people, whereby they would fill a horn with oil, olive oil, and then they would pour it on the head of a king when his reign was inaugurated. The horn represented authority or power, and the oil represented the Holy Spirit poured out to empower and supernaturally enable for service. The symbolism pointed to spiritual reality that God invested his king with authority and power and enabled him to perform the duties of kingship by the supernatural enablement and grace of the Holy Spirit. But when Jesus begins his ministry, the king of kings, he's not anointed by a prophet with a horn of oil. There was no prophet over him to whom he was accountable, properly speaking. He is the prophet of prophets. He is the priest of priests. He is the king of kings. That's what anointed one means. And so rather than being anointed by a prophet or a human with a horn of oil, he's anointed as the Christ king directly straight from God by heaven. The purpose of verse 10 is to point to Jesus as the true and ultimate anointed one, the Messiah who came as servant king to set captive Israel free. 1 John 3.8, for this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. As the Messiah, Jesus wasn't just the son of David, but he was the Lord of David. And so David himself said in Psalm 110, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. David calls him his Lord because he was greater than David and because he was anointed with the Holy Spirit to do what was impossible for David to do. David could destroy the Philistines, but he was powerless to destroy the works of the devil. And so in this scene in Mark 1.10, there's a manifold significance to it. A manifold significance. There's at least a six-fold significance to what's happening in this one little verse. First, it's significant for Christ's office as Messiah and Savior. Significant for his office. The Spirit anoints him to function in a ministerial capacity as the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. 
Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2 says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Remember, this is the passage that Jesus read in the synagogue of Nazareth before he indicated to them that the Gentiles would be elected at large and that the Jews in the synagogue of Nazareth would be reprobated by God and they got so angry that they sought to throw him off a cliff. But this is a passage he quoted. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. The anointing with the Spirit marks the inauguration of Messiah's formal ministry in order to preach the good news and set the people free. The acceptable year of the Lord that Isaiah 61 refers to is the year of Jubilee. You remember that, that every seventh year in Israel and then every 49th year according to the seven sevens that would be fulfilled would be a year of Jubilee. And in the year of Jubilee, all slaves would be freed. The captives would go free. The prison houses would be opened. All debts would be forgiven, no matter how great. That's a picture of the Messianic age. It's a picture of the grace of God revealed through the gospel. Jesus was anointed in his baptism to bring to us the ultimate redemption from sin and the pardon of all our debts before God. He came to bring the eternal jubilee, the perfect and everlasting redemption. Second, significance of Jesus' baptism, the Spirit enables him as the perfect man to perform his work with the power of God without diminishing his perfect manhood. Jesus did not deify his humanity, but he was willingly subject, and he willingly subjected himself to the limitations and frailties of humanity as our mediator. He had to assume a real full human nature upon himself in order to qualify as our mediator. And he did not circumvent or set aside his humanity in order to perform works straight from his deity in such a way that would negate or diminish his humanity. And so he did his works by the power of the Holy Spirit. Isaiah 42.1 says, Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my elect one, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. And that Hebrew word justice can also be translated righteousness. Righteousness. He was endowed with the sevenfold spirit, with the fullness of the spirit of God. Isaiah 11, 1-2 says, There shall come forth from the rod, a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of its roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, the sevenfold fullness of the spirit. John 3.34 describes Christ. For he whom God sent speaks the words of God, for God does not give the Spirit by measure. Christ had the Spirit without measure. His endowment with the Spirit by the Father in time was a reflection of his eternal relationship with the Father and the Spirit in eternity. And so in Jesus' baptism, we get a glimpse of the Trinity, and with the fullness of the Spirit, Jesus cast out demons by the finger of God. He worked miracles. He combated Satan. He preached the good news. Peter preached to the household of Cornelius, saying, The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. 
that word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. The Spirit's empowerment did not lessen or mitigate the sufferings of the Son in a state of humiliation. Rather, the Spirit who anointed him upheld his humanity so that his finite humanity wouldn't collapse under the weight of infinite divine wrath. And so Hebrews 9.14 says, that not only did he do miracles by the Spirit, not only did he destroy the works of the devil by the Spirit, not only did he raise the dead by the Spirit, but Hebrews 9.14 says, through the eternal Spirit, he offered himself without spot to God as he died on the cross. The Spirit anointed him as our priest and maintain the hypostatic union between his deity and his humanity as his humanity was bearing up the full force of the infinite punishment poured out by the father third there is a cosmically redemptive significance in jesus's baptism cosmically redemptive significance Note, note Mark 1.9, 1.10, verse 10 says, Jesus coming up from the water, that is, emerging from the water into which he was immersed, he saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending. In the Greek, the heavens didn't merely open, the word used is, Schizo, it's a violent word. It means literally, according to one Greek dictionary, the best Greek dictionary, to divide by use of force, split, divide, separate, tear apart. One scholar notes that this word, quote, appears in Jewish literature for cataclysmic demonstrations of God's power, such as the dividing of the Red Sea, Exodus 14, 21, Moses' cleaving the rock, Isaiah 48, 21, and the splitting of the Mount of Olives on the day of the Lord, Zechariah 14, 4, end quote. There's only one other place where Mark uses this word in his gospel account. And that's in chapter 15, verse 38. When Jesus died on the cross, it says he breathed out his last. And then we read, then the veil of the temple was torn, schizo, in two from top to bottom. Both tearings, both rendings, that of the heavens and that of the temple veil, are followed immediately in the next verse by a declaration that Jesus is the Son of God. And Mark 1.11, it's the Father that declares him to be the Son of God. And in Mark 15.39, it's the Roman centurion who declares him to be the, the, the Son of God, thus aligning himself with God's assessment of Christ, confessing the true identity of Christ as a type of those who would confess that Jesus is the Son of God, even of Gentiles, who by doing so would be saved. The temple itself had cosmic and redemptive significance. The veil of the temple was schizo, it was torn from top to bottom, just like the heavens here. The temple signified God's dwelling place. The temple was an archetype of heaven. It pictured heaven on earth. To go beyond the veil was to enter God's immediate presence as, in, as if in heaven itself. And when Jesus died, the veil was torn, not so much so that we could get in, Rather, it was so that the divine presence within could get out and be unleashed on a cosmic scale. Numbers 14.21, God had sworn, saying, truly, as I live, that's God swearing by his own existence, as I live, says the Lord, 
all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Habakkuk 2.14 says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Isaiah 52.10 says, The Lord has made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. And speaking to Messiah, Isaiah 49.6 says, I will also give you a light to the Gentiles. A light. That's not just like, like a light bulb in a dark room. The light is the fire of God's personal Shekinah presence. It's blazing with the shining, resplendent glory of God. I will give you as a light to the Gentiles, as an epiphanic manifestation of the glory of God to the ends of the earth, that you should be to my salvation to the ends of the earth. And so the Messiah unleashes God's glory. He came from heaven. He manifested among us in order to manifest heaven's presence on earth. As one scholar says, through Jesus, a new connection between heaven and earth, between God and humans, is established, end quote. So when Jesus was baptized, Mark is showing that the prayer of the prophet Isaiah in 64.1 of his book began to be fulfilled when he said, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. The best way to translate that Hebrew word rend is with the same word Mark uses in Mark 1.10. That you would split open the heavens and come down. It's precisely what we're seeing in our verse. That the mountains might shake at your presence. Well, that prayer in the book of Isaiah, in the context of Isaiah, is followed by the introduction of a new creation and by the destruction of the literal temple in Jerusalem and by the introduction of a new heavens and new earth as God's cosmic temple. See, the, heaven, the, the temple was destroyed, not so that God's presence would withdraw from the earth. The temple was destroyed in order to indicate that Jesus has unleashed the ubiquitous, glorious presence of the Spirit upon the earth. That's what he came to do. And so God rendered the heavens asunder, and he came down in the Spirit in Mark 1.10. And it says, a spirit descended in bodily form like a dove and rested upon Jesus. The spirit here is portrayed with avian, that is bird-like, imagery. Note that. This harks all the way back to Genesis 1-2. When God created the heavens and the earth, it says, and the earth was without form and void, Remember that? It was in a state of deep darkness and chaos. And then it says, and the Spirit of God, darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Well, that too is avian or bird-like imagery. The word hovering in the Hebrew can literally be translated as fluttering like a bird. This is the creative energies of the Spirit of God in the beginning who's moving with all his efficacious omnipotence in order to bring life out of nothing. Creative energy of the Spirit. The creative power of God brought into operation. Well, the same word hovering or fluttering is then used by God in Deuteronomy 32.11, which here he's describing how he oversaw Israel as he brought Israel out of Egypt in the Exodus. And it reads, As an eagle stirs up its nest, hovers over its young, having give, given birth to the young. This is new life coming out. Hovering over, fluttering over its young spreading out its wings, taking them up, carrying them on its wings. So the Lord alone led Jacob, and there was no foreign God with him. The Exodus is portrayed in the Old Testament as a type of the new creation. The Lord fluttered over Israel in the Exodus with his spirit. There is a canopy of glory over them 
like a great eagle spreading out its wings and sheltering Israel. That was the personal Shekinah presence of God. It was the shining presence that was more beautiful than any words can describe. It was the thing our hearts are made for. And so the Shekinah presence was fluttering over Israel and would go before Israel and would protect Israel from the scorching of the sun by day. And it was a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And God made a new nation out of them. He created a new nation out of Israel. And so like the spirit in the beginning fluttered over the great deep and brought creation out of chaos. So Jesus is endowed with the avian spirit, the efficient agent of the creative power of God, because Jesus will become the agent whose work brings about the new creation. The new creation will dawn in his person by the power of the spirit, formally when he rises again from the dead. The chaos of the curse will be reversed. The destructive and decreational power of sin will be overturned. And Jesus will make all things new. Sin leads to chaos and decreation. That's what the death penalty is. From dust you are, and to dust you shall return. You shall return to a state of chaos. You shall turn to a state of dissolution and deterioration. The good order of God will be disintegrated and your body will be dissolved into the ground. Decreational chaos, that's what sin does. Jesus comes endowed with the Spirit in order to inaugurate and to order the kingdom of God, the new creation, and the new people of God, his church. Fourth, Jesus' baptism also has gospel significance. And this is the last point of significance I'll mention here of this baptism. Gospel significance. In the events of these verses, we see the gospel in a nutshell. It's a picture of what Jesus would do when he died and rose again and opened up heaven so that the Spirit descended at Pentecost and his body, the church, received the Spirit as well as the divine approbation of the Father on behalf of the work of the Son. Jesus here is prefiguring in his own person what he's going to do as he dies and rises and sends the Spirit with whom he was bestowed. You see the parallels. Baptism is death. That's how scripture portrays it. Baptism is a death. Romans 6, 3 to 4. Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism unto death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. Baptism portrays death and resurrection. In Noah's time, the entire world died by the baptism of a great flood. 1 Peter chapter 3 and 2 Peter chapter 3 both point to the typological significance of Noah's flood as a type of baptism and death and a type of the new creation and the new world to which Noah came out. Death and resurrection and new creation. Well, Jesus was plunged into the water of the Jordan to symbolize his commitment to undergo death on behalf of sinners. And when he emerged out of that water, Mark says, coming up out of the water, it was a type and a picture of his resurrection. And it was upon his actual bodily resurrection that he was invested with the spirit comforter to pour out on his church. Precise parallels there. Well, finally, our last point, his divine identification. We've seen his vicarious identification, his messianic identification, now his divine one. Mark 1.11, that a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. 
Time fails us to unpack this as we ought. But I'll return to it again, the Lord willing, when the Father makes this same declaration from the Mount of Transfiguration. Suffice to say for now that this is an open declaration of the Father's infinite love, infinite love and perfect delight in his Son, as well as the divine testimony concerning the true identity of the man Jesus from Nazareth. You may be surprised to hear that the Father's voice here actually combines three Old Testament passages into one. Three passages in one statement. The first is Psalm 2-7, which reads, I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. That was a coronation psalm indicating the inauguration of Messiah's reign. And the second text quoted is Isaiah 42.1. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights, in whom I am well pleased. All the Father's delight is in the Son because of who the Son is in eternal relationship with the Father. He's the eternal Son that John 1.18 says is in the bosom of the Father. Even when he was incarnate upon this earth in the days of his flesh, in the state of humiliation, he was still in the bosom of the Father in the divine nature because his divine essence is one with the Father. And so there's perfect harmony, perfect delight between the Father and the Son. There's a perfect acquiescence between their nature. There's a perfect consistency between them. And then the third text might surprise you a bit more. When he says, beloved son, this is my beloved son. There's only one Old Testament passage that uses that language like that. And you know what it is. Genesis 22, where God said to Abraham to take his only beloved son and sacrifice him on Mount Moriah. And we know what the lesson was from that story, right? Substitutionary satisfaction. Substitutionary atonement. The Lord provided the lamb. That was the point of the story. And the place of Isaac, the ram, which is a type of lamb, was provided to die so that Isaac would live. Substitutionary Atonement. Thus, by incorporating the language from Genesis 22 into the declaration of Mark 1.11, there is an implicit expectation that substitutionary death just might be in the purview of the mission of this son. Finally, we ought to ask ourselves, have I embraced Jesus Christ as the Bible presents him? Have we received him as our vicarious, sin-bearing substitute? Have we trusted in him as our Messiah King? Have we received the Holy Spirit through faith in his name to be made a new creation in his sight? Have we confessed that he is the divine Son, not only in whom the Father delights, but in whom we delight? There's salvation, no other way. And listen, the Son is not a beggar asking for our permission to accept him. He's the king to whom every knee must bow. That's what Messiah means, the king. God doesn't ask our opinion if we'll, we will be kind enough to accept his king or not. You might have heard, Arminians love to say this, God is a gentleman and he never forces himself on anybody. He leaves it up to man's almighty free will and is basically impotent before the almighty will of man. So please accept Jesus. Jesus is begging you, they say. That's not what Psalm 1-2 says. Or rather, Psalm chapter 2, the second psalm, from which the Father's quoting in this verse. Listen to verses 8-12 to of Psalm 2. 
Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance, and the ends of the earth for your possession. It doesn't sound like he needs people's permission. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun. You know what the image is there? In antiquity, when a king would present himself, it was expected of his subject to bow and oftentimes to take his hand and to kiss it as a gesture of submission and honor and respect. And so he's saying, kiss the sun, honor the sun, recognize who the sun is, bow down to the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. And then we have a beatitude. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. You see, the king who came as the meek and dove-like Messiah is coming again with the ferocity of a lion. And I love that in the book of Revelation chapter 5, when no one is found worthy in the entire world to open the book, that title deed to the earth, to unloose its seals. And then John is introduced to the lion and it says, Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And then John says this, And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders, and we expect him to say, A lion. But he says, Stood a lamb as though it had been slain having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth, the fullness of the Spirit. The Son has been appointed to reign on Zion's holy hill. He is the lamb-like lion and the lion-like lamb. And right now, you can know this lion as your lamb. Right now, he's reigning in grace. John says, I saw him as a lamb that had been slain, the blood, as it were, dripping off his neck, as a fountain that pardons sin and uncleanness. He's reigning in grace now, but he's coming again to reign in power. And he doesn't need your permission to establish his reign. And yet, in his great mercy, he offers amnesty and forgiveness and pardon and peace and a truce with all those who bow the knee to him and confess that he is the Savior, the Son of God, and place their faith in him. Well, in our modern day, we have lost the knowledge of what kingship entails. Don't look at King Charles for that image, he's pathetic. And I can say that because I'm an American and I haven't forgotten 1776. The real concept of kingship stems from the ancient world. The kings were the makers of history. They were the lords. They were the sages. They were the providers. They were the judges. They were the warriors. And they were the saviors who rescued their people from their enemies. The worst thing you could have done in the ancient world was to cross a king and offend him and fall under his displeasure. But the best thing that could happen to you in the ancient world was to have a good king, a good powerful king. Brothers, sisters, and friends, God has given us the best king of all. A king who is almighty in power, full of grace and truth, compassionate and long-suffering towards sinners, and who never makes a mistake. The king of kings, the Lord of lords. And so submit to him as Lord, and he will be your benefactor. Acknowledge him as your sage, and you'll be truly wise. Realize he is your judge, and come to terms with him now, before you stand before his great bema seat. 
Petition him to be your warrior and to defeat your greatest enemies, to break the yoke of the sin that binds you, to cast out the demons and regrets that haunt you, to shut the mouth of the accuser who condemns you, to subdue the grim reaper whose sickle is right now pursuing you. Receive him as your savior and let him rescue you from a fallen, cursed earth doomed to futility and destruction. Believe in him and you'll know the joy of the torn veil, the blessed presence and glory of God that'll give your soul heaven on earth now and in the age to come, heaven on earth forever. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, may we know that heaven of delight in our own souls now. May we find all our pleasure, all our complacency, all our satisfaction in your beloved Son in whom you are well pleased. Father, please help us to grow into the fullness of Christ. Grant that we may know a fuller measure of your Spirit, that we, through your Spirit, may put to death the works of the flesh. Anoint us more fully in the anointed one. Lead us into all the truth which the anointing teaches us, Lord. Empower us to destroy temptation at its very root, which is only possible by your Spirit. And help us, Father, to rejoice in Jesus Christ, our Savior, and to serve him and live for him and to glory only in him all the days of our life. In Christ's name, amen.